Greetings, global citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. My next interview is coming to us in two parts. I am meeting with Egyptologist Samir Abbas. He is the owner and CEO of Real Egypt and Real Sudan Tours. So please be sure to join us for both parts where we talk in depth about African civilization, as well as his journey to becoming and realizing the Africanness in his Egyptian heritage. So let's get to the interview. Hi there, local citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Hello again from Brooklyn, New York. We are in the final weeks before this monumental election that's coming up. And so I am hunkering down and doing some volunteer activities just to show my citizenship commitment to getting people out to vote and getting people to think critically about the issues. So I just put that in as an aside because I'm in the U.S. for an extended amount of time because these times are so challenging. My guest today is in Europe. He's coming to us from Barcelona by way of Egypt. His name is Samir Abbas. He is the owner and operator of Real Egypt and Real Sudan, which are based in Cairo and Khartoum. And this is a travel services company. So they do tours, they do lectures, they do a lot of servicing for universities, for schools across the region and abroad. And he is also an environmentalist and Egyptologist, and he has been featured on more than 60 Nile TV programs. And Nile TV is the national broadcaster in Egypt. And he has been featured as the expert on ancient Nile Valley civilization. Samir, I love your resume and welcome to Global Citizens. Tell us more about you. Thank you. Tell us more about you and uh, what inspires you. That will be a long story, but to cut the long story short. So you are talking to a black person who was born in Egypt, in Alexandria, 47 years ago, a long time ago now. And a young boy, tall, slim, dark skin or black, in a community which is mostly of Mediterranean culture, or Mediterranean blood. If you are familiar with Alexandria, Alexandria is a city in the north part of Africa, the northern part of Africa in Egypt. And it is overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. From a family origin which has come from the south of Egypt, which is near the border of Sudan. That's how I get my dark skin and my African genetics. And I grow up, which is have no connection with Africa. Living in Egypt and Alexandria have no connection with Africa at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody like more than 20, 25 years ago will ask me about who I am, Arab, Middle Eastern, Egyptian, but the word Africa will not come to my mind at all. Interesting. It was a very interesting story, my transition, how I start looking at my African background. Even being born and grown up in Egypt, in Africa, which is, I haven't knew my African roots, I haven't knew my African backgrounds until I start excavating that or exploring that. Mm -hmm. I like that word, excavating. Yeah. So my first degree in agriculture engineering had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. 
And one of the very interesting facts, which I'm not very, I'm not shy to tell to everybody, is in my schooling, the worst degrees I had is in English and history. Oh. <laughs> and you have to use both of those on an everyday basis. So. Exactly. You know, Arabic is my first language. English yes. is my second language. Sure. And I, I was educated in a public school. And in public schooling in Egypt, in that time, so you will finish your high school and you cannot put two English words together. So it was really a big challenge. And there was the first thing happens to me, that, which is a culture shock. That's when I was chosen by the city hall in that time, that was over 27 or 25 years ago, to be one of the students to represent Alexandria in a big festival contains many people or many young people in my of my age in that time come from 27 different cities named after Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> so is that what it was called? It was called the Alexander Festival. Is that what it was called? It was the like Alexander Festival, you know. So which is <laughs> and, and then it was a big scam, you know, because you know they, they chose me only because I was a famous basketball player in one of the good teams of Alexandria in that time. Okay. I was mm-hmm. but they didn't knew that I don't have a co- any other communication skills like language. I don't know much about my history to talk with the people there. So I spent like seven days, which was like torturing for me because I would like to speak with every person from different backgrounds, understand, because that for me, the world was very small before this moment. And this Culture chopped opens awarded in front of my eye suddenly. Mm-hmm. I went back home in depression after seven days. I have mm-hmm. to run away to go out of this bubble, especially that in the news, in the news and the TV. First of all, the organization-wise, it was not not good at all. Not okay. At all. But in the news came out that it was the most and the best festival ever planned in the history of Egypt. So that was another culture shock for me because until this point, until this time, I used to believe in everything in the TV, everything in the radio, everything written up. Interesting. Okay. Okay. This statement, which is in the TV, kept me freeze in front of the TV, the news, the national broadcasts of the news for 10 minutes. Do you know what I was trying to do in 10 minutes? I was trying to fool myself. Oh. I was trying to fool myself that for 20 years I was right. And it was, the news is right. Mm-hmm. And everything I believe in the news is right. And I wasn't focused much in this conference or in this festival to see the situation that it was a great situation, but I haven't noticed that. I missed that. For 20 years, I was trying to fool myself, to convince myself, all of my heritage for 20 years is not wasted. No. That was right, and the news is right, and what I've seen myself with my eyes and my ears is not the right. <laughs> Interesting. So, right, right, right. So, yeah, so that is a rude awakening. After 10 minutes, I almost left myself. That's, yes, that was really a wake-up call for me. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that was the turning point in my life, turning time in my life. That's when I decided to go back to explore, like to go out of this book and to question everything. It was very difficult, you know, I don't know what to do. And I decided to go back to the school again and study history to be a tour guide. So a tour guide, I will meet people from different backgrounds. If I cannot afford traveling, at least I can take them on a tour in the city. But the question is that how do you accept me in this college, you know? So to do a two years intensive programs and you know the history of Egypt and how condensed it is. 
Mm-hmm. I have to be already qualified to pass a test in order to get to these courses and get qualified. 500 candidates applied, only 50 they need, and I was one of them. Wow, okay. It's not because I was smart. No, it was because of basketball. That was another thing which I'm not sure about. It. So I think that I failed on almost in every exam, you know, that's even the language exam because my language skills was almost uh, not existing at that time. But again, because of the college, wanted a basketball team. I wanted me to do this team. <laughs> but when I started working on myself, I finished my first degree. I started working as a, as a tour guide. The warning was up, opening up gradually to me, like meeting people from different countries, taking them around, then decided to move to Cairo to take another degree. That was my third degree in Egyptology. Then I knew what I'm doing. And I now I'm, I'm getting more into, very familiar with history, with Egyptian history, Sudanese history. I graduated after three years as the second one in my class, and I was working at that time. And then I was already working for travel companies. And then in 2008, I said, no, that's enough. I cannot work for other companies anymore. Mm -hmm. I have a certain values, which is not about the money, but mainly about delivering a message. And I feel that my message is not being delivered or being distracted or controlled by mm-hmm. people they would like to make more money. Yeah. And that's why I decided to say goodbye for travel companies gradually and built my own business. I started with Egypt and then then. But before telling you how things evolved me to this stage, I need to Tell also you another interesting thing about which is makes makes the bond with Africa with me. Okay. So I was invited for a trip when I was living in Alexandria to go to Aswan. You know, if you're not familiar with the map or the audience not familiar with the map of Egypt, so Egypt in the northeast part of Africa. Yes. Alexandria in the very north part of Egypt, which is be the very north part of Africa as well. Yes. Aswan in the southern part of Egypt. Aswan ancient Egyptian record named known as the gateway to Africa. Okay. So I was invited by the college to make this trip. And I remember when I made to Aswan, that was another big a good shock for me. Because for some reason I felt that I belonged there, not in Alexandria. There is mm-hmm. people in skin color. Mm-hmm. There is a nature and environment and weather, which is my body feels healthier and like mm-hmm. a, a hotter climate. Mm-hmm. Even with all of my colleagues in the schools, they were complaining from the sun and the heat. I was, for me, that was <laughs> just uh, what you're talking about. Yes. But the Nile River comes to its most beauty. And I, that make, point. Yes, I decided that I will graduate. I will find a house by the Nile in Aswan and live the rest of my life here. They have a good basketball team. They have tourism. I don't need anything else. Okay. Yeah, so... It was my first one with Africa. That's how I knew my African part. Ah, okay. So you came Not, to understand, yes, by the that's south. How I came to understand my African roots only when I found myself fitting in African community, which is a gateway of Egypt to the rest sure, of the world. Sure, so, sure, sure, sure. That gave me the power to focus more on my study on that mm-hmm. and focus more on my tours on that. And in 2011, when things went down in Egypt, without thinking, I went to Sudan. I spent three years there building itineraries, tours, exploring and taking groups, touring them until I built a team of archaeologists, Sudanese archaeologists. They are working with me 
in introducing Sudan civilization. Wow. Wow. That's so intriguing. Just to be, and I, I want to get a little bit more into the process of building that business abroad because that's, you know, I talk a lot with people who come from a Western culture and build in, typically build in Africa. And I love the fact that you are in an African culture and building in another African culture, which is quite different from your original standpoint. So first, let me take a step back and do my why the where question, because you've kind of touched on that. But right now I'm talking to you from Barcelona. So this is my question for now. I mean, first of all, where are you local? And then why the where? So how did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently are? Okay, so and first of all, I like so much the name of your show, which is uh, Glocal Citizen. That was a new experience for me. I started searching and trying to find okay. Really, I found that this expression fits in me now. Yes, wonderful. So I grew up in Alexandria. I moved to Cairo. Then I moved to Khartoum in Sudan. And then also I explored Ethiopia and many other African countries, total number of European countries, total number of countries, which is over 25 countries that they are increasing now. Mm-hmm. And the more I travel, the more I respect and the more I value more my African roots. Mm-hmm. So my story with Barcelona started only less than three months ago or four months ago. Okay. So I am a new here. Okay. And after I finished my degrees and became more focused on Nile Valley civilization, Egyptology, Kushite, Nubian, and Egyptian civilization as an African civilization, I figured out that it is a time to understand this African civilization in a broader scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And doing a master in world history in Barcelona. Okay. That's why I decided to go to Barcelona. And I'm very happy actually because the university, which is UPF University, is a very good university. And I'm very, I'm not being upset with the classes so far. And that's also opening the doors wider for me to understand Africans' rules and African civilization rules in a broader perspective. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Now, you said UPF. What does that stand for? It's uh, U, UPF. I don't let me. Oh, it. it's a Spanish. It's a Spanish acronym. Okay, 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 okay. All right. So I'll get that from you and add it to the show notes. Something, something fabric, you know, that. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So we'll have that in the show notes. Okay, interesting. So just to spread your wings further and, and broader perspective, I get that. Okay, so taking another step in a different direction, I'm curious about how growing up, you mentioned that you never had a sense of your Africanness, but your mother, you mentioned, is from Sudan or has the, more of the African background. Your father has more of the Middle Eastern background. So how did they come together? The other, the other way around. The other way around. Okay, so it's father that is the African roots and the mother is the Middle Eastern roots. So how did they come together? How do they come together to find each other and create this Egyptologist we're speaking with now? That's a very common story which just happens in Egypt a lot. And it's still happening until today, you know. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the southern part of Egypt is not as well developed and receiving the proper attention like the north part of Egypt. Okay, so it's migration. And, you know, most of the governments, most of the wealth and the money in the north part. Mm-hmm. And after that, there was one one of the biggest drama happens in the modern history with building the old dam in Aswan and the high dam to the south of Aswan causing literally flooding houses and villages of over 100,000 Nubians. Mm. has to relocate themselves. Mm-hmm. Their villages, which is became under the water now, their fields, their trees and their temples and their entire civilization and have to find another place. 
Okay. So that was a big wave of immigrations happens in Egypt in the 1960s and 1970s. That's when my grandfather did his step and he decided to move to Alexandria, to the farthest north of Egypt. <laughs> and they were living a very humble life in that time. And that's when my father was being born, mm-hmm. a very poor family. And they were living literally in a rooftop in a small room on a rooftop of a building. The interesting thing that the building in front of them that was owned by a kind of an upper middle class family of Alexandria at that time, which is coming from Mediterranean background. Mm-hmm. And my father, he starts working for my grandfather from my mother's side, okay. which is Mediterranean blood and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And then he was impressed with how hard workers and how smart, because my father, he educated himself, you know, like from scratch until he sure. The schooling and colleges as well. Sure. And he was working and studying at the same time. And when my mother needed uh, classes and uh, classes like to improve her academic and the high school, my father voluntarily, you can raise all of your fingers, <laughs> that, and that's how the connection. But, okay. but these marriages, it was very uncommon to happen in that time. Right, right, right. That's why I asked that question because I know that there's. Similar to men, you know, just the global South and many countries, we have the same thing. And that's, I'm not surprised that Southern Egypt is less developed than Northern Egypt. And the closer you are to lighter skin, there are definitely more opportunities available, more infrastructure available, more of everything. So I see the classic migration story, opportunities for economic growth. So let me ask you this question, which is our local speak question. This is where I ask what you hear. So not necessarily where you are in Barcelona, but what I'm interested in you sharing a word or phrase or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. So considering you've only been in Spain for a short time, maybe it's not something from Spain, but maybe it's something from your experience in Sudan or in Egypt or any other country that you've experienced. So can you rephrase your question again, just to make sure that... Yes. Yes. So the local speak is what you hear. So something that sticks with you that you've taken along your journey as as a reminder or as something meaningful and in the way that people communicate from other places where you've been. Okay. So something which is other words, you know, like something to connect me while here with Africa, Mm -hmm. something which is I speak with when it comes was for being here to remind me and to connect me with Africa. That's like your question. Sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. So first of all, I have almost half of my time is still in while here in Barcelona. Every day is consumed in conversations with people in Egypt and Sudan. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that to keep up my business, it was you know the good news that I managed to survive the COVID so far. You know, like uh, yes, you know, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. And we start receiving some requests, which is good enough to move things around and in the process of developing things as well. Mm-hmm. So here in Barcelona, I'm still, you know, still new. I haven't explored that much. I still mm-hmm. much into studies, uh, the language study, the academic and also like telework. But I know that there is a kind of a space here for people to express their views. Yes. Unlike the places where I came from. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
And I highly respect that, you know, even which is a surprise thing for me that there are some people complaining that they don't have enough space to express themselves, you know, which is I would like to invite them to go to some countries in Africa and see the difference. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, also I travel in different places in Spain, actually, you know, this is not my first visit to Spain. I came here for a short visit in January. I found that there is a passion for the people here to learn about Africa and to learn about Egypt as well. And I found also that the word just mentioning the word Africa, Egypt as part of Africa makes people like there is a big gap in people knowledge about Africa and there's a deep interest to learn about that. The big problem is the travel business is very much corrupted and controlled mm. by media companies, big corporations which is selling very cheap. I'm not talking about cheap price, but cheap ideas. Yeah. They are not selling experiences. They are selling just highlights. They are taking people, putting them jams on a bus, and they're taking them to see just highlights without even giving the proper explanation. Right. No depth. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the people which is ending traveling to Egypt as one of the destinations of Africa or North Africa, and they don't have the chance to learn the history in a proper way. Mm-hmm. Not only hardly anybody from Europe and especially from Spain, they make it to the heart of Africa. Right. Right. So Africa for them is the north part, mm-hmm. which is easily, mm-hmm. Iraq, Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, yeah. and the southern part, which is Cape Town. And exactly, exactly. Everything in the middle is like... Mm. Yeah. Real yeah. Africa lies in between. Okay. Yes, exactly. Most, most of the people did not have any knowledge about it. Even when I talk with people about Sudan, they get shocked. Sudan? Is there Israeli? Is there people going to Sudan? Why? What in Sudan, actually, for people to see? When I tell them that in Sudan there are three times more permits in numbers than the permits of Egypt, which is the most famous thing in Egypt, yes. they get shocked. Yeah. They, they can't believe it. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, right, right. So just putting it back in context about the global speak. So how would you, what kind of word would you describe as something that's very common in your experience in giving tours, specifically in Egypt? So something that you often end up, you know, okay. telling people as like in their travel, like, oh, when you're here, this is something that you'll hear often. So know that this means that. So I will tell you like a story because I organize like many tours for mm-hmm. African-Americans. They are visiting Egypt and Sudan, searching for the routes. And I remember that in one in one of the lectures, which is I give it, I give a lecture on Aswan and I give a lecture about Egyptian civilization as an African civilization. Mm-hmm. And I talked with them about a hinge, which is like the stone hinge, the famous one in England, England sure, which yeah. is was about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I talked about this hinge, which is 3,000 years at least older than the stone one in England. Yes. Yes, of course. Uh-huh. And I was doing this lecture in a hotel in Aswan at that time, and I told them this Stonehenge is only only 15 minutes drive or 30 minutes walking distance from you here. Have you heard about it? Mm-hmm. You haven't heard about it. So that was a big shock for them. And I remember that you know they, they were leaving the following day in the early morning in a flight. They decided after the lecture to give up their dinner. To go. So they go and see the Stonehenge, which is nobody talks about it. Sure. Exactly. So these are the kind of things which I talked about when it come when it comes to Egypt and Sudan. You know, so uh-huh. because because Egypt itself is not introduced 
to the world as an African civilization. Sure. And that is the I would like to focus on it. Got so it, why, yes. Why, why Egypt was stripped out from its African roots and why Egypt, what is the proof that Egypt is an African civilization? For a group, there is like hundreds of proofs, you know, just being situated in Africa, that's one of the strongest proof itself. You know, actually, to it's not African, that's a very weird assumption, which is, that's need to be. Sure. But, you know, one of the very interesting facts is that how the Egyptian civilization has been introduced to the world mm-hmm. by Africans, not by Egyptians. Mm-hmm. It was by many Europeans' colony. Mm-hmm. The to Egypt started by the French, that was in the 18th century, for the Suez Canal to connect the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and part of their historical fight with England. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why the England or the British England, they like jumped into Egypt after that. So when the French came to Egypt, they were surprised. They've seen things. They haven't seen it before and it was not known before. Mm-hmm. And when they've seen the pyramids and when the British colony, when they've seen the pyramid, the Sphinx and the temples, and that was the same time that's when that was the peak of slave trade. Right. And the main source of the slaves that was coming from Africa, young, hard workers, which is needed in another colony in Latin America. Aha. Uh-huh. Sugar cane cultivations and tobacco plantations, and in the US as well, in the cotton plantations and tobacco right. plantations. Right. Because almost the half of the native population, like native Indians or native people there, has been died because of diseases, you know, after the colony and because of also some other problems in North America. So they needed the slave. Mm-hmm. And the biggest source for slaves that was from Africa. Yes. And, you know, to convince a person like you and me, but with a different skin color, that he can hire or he cannot hire, he can buy, he can purchase a human being with arms and legs and eyes and nose like him, but the difference that is in a different color, and treat them like an animal farms, that was a problem they have to deal with and they have to convince the white people, which is they were in control in that time, that those people, they are not true human. They are half human, half beast. They might be like, looks like us, but they don't have the human soul. And, or they are not fully evolved, a human being. They're still like a stage between the apps, monkey, and human being. Mm-hmm. So, and there was hundreds of theories, and that was almost convinced everybody that in a state that Africans sometimes displayed in a zoo in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So think about in the middle of that, when pyramids in Egypt, which is built 4,500 years ago, nobody until now knew the sophistication knowledge, how it was built back in that time. Right. So that is completely turning the theories upside down. Because it doesn't make sense that people which is not evolved yet, and we are much more superior than them, 4,500 years before us, when we were still living in caves, they were very sophisticated and had that much knowledge and civilization to build this sophisticated civilization. Right. And that's why they decided in that point to strip Egypt from its African root. They cannot cover up the pyramids. They cannot mm-hmm. cover so mm-hmm. we have to create another theory. And this theory is not only started by the British colony, by the way, is as early as Herodotus. If you are yes. Herodotus, yes. Greek historian from the fifth century BC, he traveled to Egypt. And you know what is his first comments about comments about the pyramids when he sees the pyramids? Because he came, he thinks that Greek is the highest civilization of all this. Exactly, right. Once he sees these African pyramids standing in front of him, he said, This pyramid is built by slaves. <laughs> 
And he said also that it was all of his book about the pyramids or in his guidebook, it's mainly about to demonize and to humble the pyramids of Africa. Yes, to make them meaningless. Mm -hmm. So he said that, so the King Hofu, the owner of the Great Pyramid, he was running out of money. And when his daughter realized that his father, he cannot finish his project, the daughter of the king herself decided to work in a brothel as a prostitute to raise funds for her father. And she was greeted by a bonus by every man had a relation with her with a stone block. That's how she built her own pyramid. Wow. <laughs> and people believed it. That's so deep because it's more than just about, you know, that these Africans couldn't do it. Is that this woman was a whore. So now yeah. we have the African woman as an eternal whore. You know, so it was very interesting. So the want to promote or they want the people to believe that the pyramids built and using the pyramids as a symbol for the African civilization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is not the only one. There is a hundred other civilizations, but as a pyramid as an example. So it was built from a prostitute money. It was built by slaves. It was mm-hmm. built by the Israelites. It was built by the aliens. It was built by the people of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. All these theories are the most common theories now about the pyramids. Sure. But, but truth. more Africans. Yes. Yeah. No truth. The basic truth is but, just washed away. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. I absolutely get it. So you're, I love that your local speak is just spreading the gospel that Africans and Africa is more than what Europe and the West truly understand it to be. So there's so much more depth, which is the evolution of your company. So you mentioned, you know, how you kind of ease your way into the travel business, but tell us more about your academics and and how you came to be an expert in Egyptology beyond just your studies, but also in your experiences traveling around and how you got to really understand the history and use it to build your businesses. So I feel that my mind is like pulled into two parts, mm-hmm. business on one side mm-hmm. and academic on one side. And sure. normally those two are not mixed. Normally it's, it's true. not mixed. It's not, true. You know, and that's why myself I'm trying to solve this confusion like sooner or later. So having you know, having the business for me, I'm not a businessman. So mm-hmm. by the way, you know, Real Egypt is number one on TripAdvisor, which is the most important travel site. Yes, yes. Number one on TripAdvisor too, and Real Egypt was on Lonely Planet, which is mentioned among like only one of four companies in Lonely Planets, and there is mm-hmm. like three thousand companies in Egypt. Yeah, but myself, I refuse to introduce myself as a businessman. Okay, so it's not about the money which is drives me. Mm-hmm. It is the message I would like to deliver and the quality of what I would like to deliver. I enjoy it. The process. I enjoy talking to people. Until now, I hire and train people to do the administrative work, which is I know how to do it well, mm-hmm. in order to give myself the time to communicate with people, to answer their emails, and take them in tours as well. Yeah. And when I choose a degree to do, I didn't choose a business like many, like my business advisor, he advised me, I have to do a management degree. I said, no, that will shift me away completely from, I choose another degree in history. So, okay. and it was not easy to be honest. It was not easy, like time-wise, but on the other hand, it was not complicated because I was not focused on the business and the money. I was focused more on the value I can give it. Sure. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I tried that I don't put any money for marketing at all. Okay, so word of mouth is everything. I take people around. I train. I have over 100 person now in my team. Mm-hmm. They are in Egypt, in Sudan, in Ethiopia. And I choose them very well, which is to have the same background and the same mentality, the same concept. Sure. To treat people as guests. Mm-hmm. 
to believe that in their rule is not to lead a tour, but to deliver a message and mm-hmm. to help people understand. Mm-hmm. And that's how I grow. And that's how you manage to mix both them together. Okay. So take us on one of your most popular tours. What is the tour entail? Okay. So there is one tour, which is I put uh, Egypt and Sudan together. Okay. And that is one of my favorite tours. I start from Cairo, which is, I mean, airport. People come to the airport and I take them not to Giza Pyramid. It was a great pyramid first. I take them to Saqqara Pyramid. I take them to Maidun Pyramid. I take them to the Bent Pyramid in Dashur. Then the following day, I take them to, to Giza Pyramid. Why? When you bring people from a European backgrounds, from Western backgrounds, and which is their civilization, which is the oldest one of them is like 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. When you put them in front of a very sophisticated, one of the greatest, biggest building on earth, 4,500 years ago, they cannot understand it. Their mind, we fail to understand the concept that that could be a human being built it back in that time. Mm-hmm. And that's why I take them in transition. I show them, I show them the first pyramid built by the African Egyptians. I show them many of the tries and errors, which is made by the Egyptians in that time, which is among them the collapsed pyramids in Maidum. Mm-hmm. And pyramid when they screw up halfway and they couldn't finish the pyramid right and became like an event looking. And I tell them the history of 200 years of suffering and learning until they managed to build a great pyramid. Right. Then I take them, I fly them to Luxor. And I show them more into, because we are closing to this, getting to the south, more deep into Africa now. Yes. I show them the Valley of the Kings, the big temples, Karnak and Luxor, and I take them to tombs, which is showing the ancient Egyptian how he looks like. Not only kings, also individuals mm-hmm. with their body style, mm-hmm. slim body, a dark skin, black, brown ridges skin, skin mm-hmm. with the features, which is very much like what is Africans looks like today. And I tell them that was the ancient Egyptians. The people you are seeing today, them today in, in Cairo and Alexandria, in north of Egypt, they are like all North Africa, they are a melting pot. Right. Oh. All immigration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I put them in a boat. I choose not the big engine cruise boat, uh, like a smaller version called the Dahabeya, which is with sail. And I make them sailing the Nile River, exactly like the ancient Egyptian did, sure. in cabin, with meals and with toilets and showers and everything. But putting them in a sailboat and not only stopping on archaeological sites like the big cruise. No, we stop in villages and go and see people, how they live, uh-huh. how the African culture is still in everyday life. Sure. And then arriving in Aswan, which is the highest African experience in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Making them Stonehenge, make them feeling proud. Mm-hmm. Make, showing them how 3,000 years before the English one, we have the our, same Technology, yeah. Is it called Stonehenge in Egypt as well? We call that Napta Playa Henge. Napta Playa Henge. And there, because this henge is nearly 2,000 years or 3,000 years prior to the pyramids, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is about 7,000 years ago. Yeah. And we mean that the pyramids was like a peak. It wasn't a start. It was a peak. The civilization already started in Africa 2,000 years before. Right. 7,000 years, actually starting only from the hench, the Napa Plain. And before to reach the hench, we have another 3,000 years of unrecorded civilization. So we are talking about 10,000 years of yes. civilization. Then from Aswan to Abu Simbel, crossing the border to Sudan, 
and hugging the Nile River and traveling on roads, on off-roads along the Nile River, deeper in Africa, and see gradually how the African effects is getting higher and mm-hmm. how nations merge and influence each other and they grow with each other back in the time, influencing both sides until mm-hmm. we made it to Khartoum and then the National Museum. We stop at Marawi site, for example, in Marawi. It's the biggest pyramid field ever in the whole world. A hundred pyramid in one field in Marawi. That is in Sudan. I take them through Abu Simbel in the southern part of Egypt by the border and also in Karima with Jabal Barkan in Sudan. Both dedicated for a gods in ancient Egypt. They were known as God Amun. And based, both considered a brainwashing machine. I call them a brainwashing machine. Of how civilizations back in the time, African civilizations, they were clashing and trying to influence each other. Yes, exactly. So to put it in context, was Sudan, the Sudan that you're taking on the tour, was that Sudan or Nubia or was it Egypt? That was a very good question. You know, So you throw up like Sudan, Egypt and Nubia. So first of all, we need to explain to our audience, what is Nubia? So Nubia means, as the word means gold. It was named in that name by the Romans, ah. uh, and by, and by the ancient Egyptians, even before that, by the ancient Egyptians, because that was a source of gold. Got it. So there is a plenty of resources of Africa that became one of the biggest, I will say, setbacks, but one of the yes. biggest enemies, enemies of Africa itself. Yes. So Nubia lies between south of modern Egypt today, which is in Aswan, mm-hmm. until north of Khartoum today. Okay. And this area known as the Nubian lands, which is people have different culture, different traditions. They have been identified by the word Nubians or the land of gold. So there is also another term, which is Kosh. Kosh also another Kosh, term yeah. to the Sudanese civilization, mm-hmm. which is were in clash from time to another with the northern civilization in Egypt, and which is both of them African, but they were because of the borders and because of fighting on resources, sometimes they were in, sometimes in clash with each other. So that was just to draw alliance between what is Nubians, ancient Egyptians, and but the interesting thing, that's why I like Stonehenge, like not apply. The interesting thing, that that's another story that, and I hear different lectures about the Stonehenge, and there is an ongoing fight since it was discovered, because it's still something new. So the Sudanese saying that it is a Sudanese, it is ours. It is an Egyptian territory now, okay? More specific, 120 kilometers to the west of Abu Sabah, southwest Egypt. And the Egyptians, they said, no, it is in our land, that's ours. The Nubians saying that is our territory. We don't have lands, but at least we deserve that is to be ours. Okay. <laughs> so the fact that in the time when the Stonehenge emerged or made or built or erected, better say erected, uh, sorry, the Natablaya, the Henge, there was no Egypt, there was no Sudan, there was no Kosh, there was no Nubia. They were all Africans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were all Africans coming from the same race, from the same backgrounds. And after that, they started being divided into Egyptians, Kushites, Nubians. All of them inherited this one civilization, which is rooted in Africa, born in Africa, the Stonehenge or the Henge of Naptablai is a symbol of that. And then they spread and they start to improving the civilization in different territories. Sure, sure. Yep, yep. I guess. So that then puts some framework around your Nile Valley civilization studies exactly. or expertise. Yeah. Which just connects all that all together. Thanks for joining us this week for Global Citizens. 
Please do join us for part two of my conversation with Samir Abbas next week. As always, you can find us at localcitizenspod.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, you can find us. So please do join. There are great show notes for this episode. So please do check us out on the website and also wherever you find your podcast. Subscribe, share, drop us a line. Just let us know you're out there. Thanks again for joining. Bye for now.